Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory will discuss her stories and answer your questions. The focus is on craft. Lane is a masterful storyteller who has won dozens of national awards over the years, and I'm lucky enough to be her editor. My name is Maria Carrillo, the Enterprise Editor at The Times. Recently, we republished The Girl in the Window, Lane's iconic story about a feral child, and we published another piece about Danielle Lero now at 19. You can look it up on our website, tampabay.com. So let's talk about revisiting The Girl in the Window. Lane, you went to Tennessee in September. What did you expect? thinking about how Danny might be doing now. Um, we had visited Danny three years after the first story. So we'd seen her at age 12 um, in Tennessee, where she'd moved to. And she was doing better then. She was she was definitely making progress. She seemed to be connecting with people more. She was potty trained. She was going to school. She was in a, a special ed class where people were calling her their friend. And she seemed to recognize people. Um, so I felt like now, you know, by the time we saw her at 19, maybe she would have really recovered a lot of what had been lost um, in the early years. Um, I, I didn't think necessarily that she could talk, but I thought she would maybe be able to get herself dressed and walk the dog and make a sandwich and, you know, just kind of those very basic uh, skills. Um, so, and again, my son's the same age, so he's also launching at 19 in this whole different way. And I thought, well, what that would be interesting to see norm, n- normal, but every, every child who gets to age 18, 19 decides how they launch in their own way. And I thought, okay, that would be a good point to get back with Danny. Was it heartbreaking to see? I mean, expecting, hoping, I guess, that she was going to be further along? It was. I, I mean, I, for 10 years, I thought, oh, I can't wait till she, you know, feels. Um, like she can run up and hug someone that she likes yeah. or make her will known. And um, there wasn't very much of that. I mean, I, I knew she wasn't going to recognize me. I didn't expect that at all. But I couldn't even tell if she recognized her dad. And that was kind of disheartening. That, I mean, and that's one of the questions everybody's asking you. Like, like, did she recognize you? And I think people assumed maybe that she had gotten a lot further along, you know, that, that hopefully all these years later, the therapy would have done some wondrous things and she would be like so much, I don't know, just, and that's, you've never had that with her. You've never been able to, to have that sort of give and take. And, and I, I, um, I felt like, you know, all the, the, the last time we visited her, she was farther along than this time. Um, her her dad said that she had regressed during puberty. Um, so she's back in diapers and she's, you know, she's still raiding the refrigerator, and she still can't take a bath on her own. You know, and so it just—I mean, I, I, he wanted her to be happy. That was that was his question. You know, because I kept thinking like, oh, for ten years, all these readers and all these people that have been part of the story or have been part of helping Danny, they hope, if not expect, for some big giant improvement. And you know, the question of can't love make up for everything that went wrong? And I think that was the hardest thing 
to have to resign yourself to. And this story was like, nope, you know, all the love and family and caring in the world can't make up for seven years of just being neglected to death. And for those of you who haven't read the story, that's what the story is sort of framed around is the question of like, is she happy? And that's what her father wants, of course. And, and, um, and it's hard to tell as Lane says you. So, um, I was going to ask Lane to read an excerpt. This is a little description of Danny now and where she is. So, Okay, so this is from the follow-up story. Danny now lives in a group home in a town 40 minutes southeast of Nashville, a modest rancher with a white picket fence. Potted ferns sway on the porch. She's been there since the beginning of the year. Her bedroom is at the back, overlooking a field filled with hay bales. Danny shares it with a woman about her age who also doesn't speak, who spends her days slumped in a wheelchair watching a TV that isn't turned on. Six other residents, all older than Danny, live in the home with at least two staff. Want to wear your new outfit? asked her aide, helping Danny into a lavender romper. There, you look so pretty. Let's brush your hair. Shannon Wilson is the only person Danny has ever let brush her hair. Wilson also shampoos her in the shower and convinced Danny to sit still long enough for a beautician to trim her thick hair into a chin-length bob. She's getting so much more tolerant, Wilson said, and she's letting the other residents in more. Mostly, Danny still ignores everything around her. Instead of sucking her fists, she scratches her arms. She still squints sideways when someone talks to her. That Popeye face, Bernie calls it. Workers at the group home have taught her to toss her laundry into the hamper to make her own bed and put Snoopy on the pillow. Wilson said she even knows how to wait to eat until Grace is done. And what does she love doing most? The girl who spent her first seven years confined to a dark, miserable space? Just being outside, Wilson said, sitting on the front porch or rocking on the swing out back. So we talked about this as, as we were going through the uh, edits for the story and, and just thinking this story through about, like, is she actually in a better place right now than having been with her dad? Because Bernie, of course, was juggling life and work and so many things. And as much as he wanted to help her, like, these folks at the group home seem like they've been able to to, to give her, I guess, some structure and things, right, that, that he just couldn't do it. Right. There are people who are, are trained to take care of her and help, help bring her out and other peers. You know, the psychologist I talked to, I hadn't even thought about that. It was like she's finally with her peers. So instead of being the damaged one in the family or the, the damaged one at the school, she's with other people who have the same needs. And so that's a normalizing factor in a certain way, I guess. She is doing excellent. She's, she's doing better than I ever expected. This is Bernie Lero, Danny's adoptive father. The problem that I had was I, I did have her like 24-7, but I had other things to do, and I couldn't really focus on a lot of things. Where here, they have, let's say, three people on the staff. They can always watch her and make sure she does, does it right or something like that. Like when I would go out to feed the animals, I was always wondering what, what the house would look like when I came back in. She's with her own peers, which is great. And also, the folks that work here, most of them are women. And they, she's, this is the first time she's taken to women. And she's more like a girly girl, which I think is great. What this uh, one of the interesting things about the, what's happened to them is all the collateral damage to their family. I mean, like 
I, I mean, I, I was just trying to think how heartbreaking is all of that. I mean, Bernie seems to be at peace with it, even though it seems like what a, what a trade-off to have made. I, I feel like Bernie feels like he made a choice, and he had to choose either to stay with his wife, who wanted to put Danny in a home since she was little, or do the thing he felt like he should do and take care of Danny. And I'm certain it wasn't an easy decision, and I know that their divorce was pretty acrimonious, but I think he felt like Danny needed him more than Diane did, and that was what he was supposed to do. Did he have, so it's unusual for you to have a character that you've actually like known for a decade. Um, did he have any reservations about you guys coming back up? I mean, is he like, I mean, I don't know whether, how how has he felt about all this publicity? I don't know if it hits him from day to day. I don't know if, you know, does he have some kind of celebrity status or does he, like, what is it? Has he talked about that at all? Well, his wife didn't want anything to do with it. So if, from the beginning, all of the appearances were pretty much Bernie. He got on Oprah. I mean, the, the wife was there, too, but Bernie was the lead guy. So they were on Oprah and Anderson Cooper and CNN and all these places. And I think Bernie, um, he's not a very um, publicity-seeking guy, but I think he was totally willing to do that because he thought it was not only going to help Danny, but also help other kids um, and preaching this you know, if you see something that you think is abuse, call. And if you see it, if you can take in a child, take in a child. So I feel like, you know, he was trying to do that for a greater good kind of a thing. Um, but yeah, he and I had kept up over the years. And he'd call me every once in a while. And I'd call him every once, probably a couple times a year, at least just checking in. And so he'd called me um, over the summer. And basically, it was almost, I felt like he was giving me a confession. Like, it was really, really hard for me to for him to tell me that he put her in a group home and you could tell he was just like racked with guilt about it and he kept trying to justify it and say how sorry he was and how hard he tried and you know it was it really felt like he was confessing to me like I I couldn't do this anymore Lane you know and so of course I asked can I come visit <laughs> can I come see her now can I come see what your life is like now and he was all about that so so this story, I know, is a little hard to get yourself psyched up for 10 years later because it, it's almost like a whatever happened to. And you had, um, I mean, it's it's hard to compare to the first story, obviously. The first story, you're introducing all this drama to people and and there's all that tension, you know. So how did, how did you psych yourself up for approaching this story again? Well, I knew I got to retell the backstory, which was going to be kind of fun, um, but it felt like I lost the hope that the first story had so much hope. And the story was like, okay, I'm looking for anything that's hopeful here right now. You know, I, I, I need some kind of a sign. I need something that tells me that she is in there, that she's happy, that there's been some kind of progress. Um, Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, you know, we were waiting for that payoff. Um, 
and it came in this little small way that I didn't really realize it was a payoff even until after I, afterwards. Um, so that was kind of cool. We won't give it all away, but <laughs> they're so, yeah, I was going to ask you whether, I know we've been talking about this, you know, whether you walk away feeling sad or encouraged or, you know, there's a little of both, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like she was better than she was. I feel like Bernie gave her 10 years of a childhood, you know, in a real family. I mean, it's kind of idyllic, horses and goats and dogs and places to play. You know, she had a nice a nice home and a nice family. Um, and hopefully now she's just going to be taken care of. And there, there definitely wasn't that um, distress in Danny that there was the last few times. She didn't seem agitated. She didn't seem upset like she was battling these inner demons anymore. She just seemed a whole lot more content. And so that was something. Of course, some of that could have been the medication. Yes. We don't know. But, uh, yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about putting yourself in the story, which I know you're totally uncomfortable with. But when um, we, we, as we were editing this story, we got help from our former executive editor, now contributing editor, uh, Neil Brown, from the president of the Pointer Institute. And Neil wanted Lane to, to have a whole section on Lane, which we didn't do. But we did, we did put a little more on Lane. And I... You know, Neil's thought was that you are kind of a surrogate for the for the readers in in the sense that you know you've you watched her these three visits you had these three times in her life and and so there was something to be said for having that kind of you you talking about what it felt like for you. So let's let's read those those graphs that you put in there and that way we'll set up that conversation and then you could talk a little bit about how much you love to put yourself in stories. Okay, so this is the part that Neil made me add. <laughs> when I first met Danny in Fort Myers, when she was nine, I marveled at her strong will, worried about her inner demons, and wanted so much for her new parents' love to make up for her horrible past. I could feel her frustration at not being able to make her needs known. She seemed trapped inside. Three years later, when I saw her again in Tennessee, I was encouraged. She'd grown tall and appeared to connect with the horses and puppies on the farm. She could gesture for food, throw and catch a ball. She recognized classmates who called her their friend. This visit, I wasn't sure what to expect. I knew she wouldn't recognize me, but I was startled that she didn't even seem to recognize Bernie. It was impossible to determine what she understood. This time, though, Denny let me hold her hand, walk her to the bathroom. She glanced at me sideways as if wondering who I was, then followed me back to Bernie and took his arm again. So... What do you talk about putting yourself in this story? I mean, you did. I mean, we did mention you early on because, I mean, if, without you, this story doesn't get the attention and get, you know, it doesn't blow up into what it what it became. But I know you're not comfortable <laughs> yourself in there. We talk about a little bit about that. Well, I mean, I grew up in an era where journalists are supposed to be invisible. I grew up where we didn't have our picture in the paper. We didn't have a Twitter account. We didn't have a Facebook account. And we were not allowed to be characters in our own stories. Unless you were writing a first-person story, it was like totally frowned upon to put yourself in a story. So from the time I was writing a byline at age 16, and I'm 50 years old now, that's been a, a, a non-thing. 
it's been a, something you're not supposed to do. So you're not a magazine writer. You're a newspaper writer. Exactly. And, oh, and you're sorry, not supposed to have yeah. an opinion, you know. Um, so and I've, I've been the only times I've ever done that in my stories have been when editors have made me. I've never wanted to insert myself into a story or be part of a story. Um, or when you were writing a first person essay, obviously, when you right. were writing about Bobo. Or, and even my first person <laughs> stories, most of those are about my kids or my dogs right, or something, right. my mom. <laughs> so writing about me is really, really uncomfortable for me. Um, so Neil Neil's uh, reason, I, I understood, like, Bernie's been seeing her incrementally every single day. You know, the, the the speech therapist and the psychiatrist haven't seen her in 10 years, so I, I could sort of serve as an everyman uh, observer, I guess. Um, but I, didn't, I still don't know that I was necessary in there. I think I could be an observer without being a character. Um, I think it I think it did add a little something because it showed that I mean like how she reacts to you now even though you you know she doesn't have a relationship with you she doesn't know who you are but she was willing to trust you to some degree I mean it shows something about how far how far she's come and so but yeah that's yeah, I'm it's a stranger an, like yeah. that basically is what what is it like when Danny meets a stranger right. you know that's what right. I felt like so um this story has sort of reignited the hatred over the birth mother. I mean, it's sort of like one of the reactions that we've been getting. Uh, People once again just feeling incensed about that. And, of course, the fact that Danny couldn't recover to the degree that everyone hoped um, I think is probably part of that. So were you incensed again? I mean, did this, like, rev you up again about everything and kind of dig up the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, the the first person that I called... Um, besides Bernie to re-report the story was the detective and he just went on a rampage about how this woman still lives in the same neighborhood and he and she never finished her probation and she lied and told the judge she was moving and she didn't move so my first you know reconnection with this this case besides Bernie was was this incredulity and just anger about this woman getting away with all of this you know she's been allowed to lead, lead her life whatever crappy life it is she's been allowed to lead her life and continue on in the world while Danny's just still been stuck inside because of everything that she deprived her of. Yes, Lane, I remember you. My name is Michelle Crockett. I just got home today. Uh, I do not want you on my property. If you do, I'm calling the sheriff's department. I told you that before. And if you try to go across the street, I'll have my friends arrest you across the street. I know their number, and I'm good friends with a lot of the neighbors. Uh, So just stay away from our home. For those who haven't read the story yet, like the, the mother uh, would not talk to us and, in fact, threatened Lane, <laughs> um, was going to call the police. I'm not sure the police would have come, really. And uh, <laughs> But um, anyway, she, you know, it, it would have been nice to get some insight. But and her son also one of her sons also wouldn't talk to us. But uh, you did like the talk about the police officer. You really you're quite fond of, I think, you know, um, I really like the police officer. He's so outspoken. He said everything I wanted to say, but in better police words. <laughs> and it did it did surprise me meeting the brother that he remembered it was her birthday. Mm-hmm. That to me, like he gave me three sentences and basically was like, yeah, I know it was her birthday. Do you know how old she was? She just turned 19. And that surprised me that he would I don't know if care is the word, but like remember enough to know when her birthday was after all this time. Someone they'd just thrown away. That was surprising. Um, I was thinking we should talk a little bit about just, you know, we 
not only did you go visit, of course, and then spend time with Bernie and Danny, but you caught up with everybody, all the character, all the people who had tried to help her. So it's years later. Some of them have stayed in touch. Some of them have not. You know, they're and and in some some ways you're breaking the news to them about where she is. Um, but I thought it was an it was a nice added element to the story to kind of double back and of course and then they could speak uh, I mean they end up being kind of giving us the reaction of of what this how how I guess how everybody feels 10 years later at at not having succeeded as much as everybody had hoped but so what did I what what would you take away from the conversations with those folks I kind of didn't know what the reaction would be you know I thought they'd probably remember her because almost all of them had talked about oh my god I've never seen a case this bad or whatever before but it really surprised me how um, seminal she was to everybody's career like and everybody she touched from the police officer to the uh, psychologist to the speech therapist they all had made life changes because of their interaction with Danny and they all had wondered about her and worried about her and prayed for her and hoped for her all these years so that I, I knew how much she had affected me and, and my life in ways I never thought she would or the story would, but I didn't know all these other people had the same kind of experience of like Danny really being a touchstone in terms of what was important or what, what changed in their career. I think this story was uh, for journalism, too, because we, it, I was, we were uh, kidding. Lane was running around uh, the newsroom trying to find someone who had not read the first story so she could give them the, the 10 years later story and see what their reaction was and she couldn't find anyone <laughs> and uh um, and i told her that would be hard to, it would be hard to find someone since um it was so talked about and has of course just hung with in everybody's memory um and i it's interesting the reaction we've been getting like people who have been like yeah remember this story never forgot this girl i mean Boy, that's a that's a, that's a great measure of success when when that's that's how people feel. That's been really surprising. So many readers already have said, "Oh my gosh, I've been wondering. I've been thinking about her. I remember." You know, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, we have not booked a trip for ten years out, but you know, uh, we'll see. I, Lane may yet revisit uh, Danny. <laughs> All right, so uh, your turn. If you would like to ask Lane a question about the girl in the window or any of her stories, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W R I T E L A N E at tampabay.com. And please join us next week, Wednesday morning, for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.